Well, again, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to part one of the series that we're calling One Christmas, and I will tell you a little bit more about that theme in, in just a moment. Uh, but as we get going here today, I thought I'd start this series off with just a little bit of uh, class participation. And so if you could share with the person next to you, Share with the person next to you something you enjoy about the Christmas season. This doesn't have to be overly spiritual. It certainly can. But just something that you enjoy about the Christmas season. All right? We'll have about 30 seconds. So if you are someone that enjoys absolutely nothing about the Christmas season, then you need to say bah humbug really loudly so we can all identify you because I do not relate to you at all. All right, go ahead. Something you enjoy. Parents and kids, that's a good thing too. <laughs> I know that's not true, Tom. That's right. <laughs> Ten seconds. Well, I, I have to admit that I'm a sucker for the Christmas season. I really, really enjoy it. And uh, after I grumble a little bit when Carrie tells me to go up in the attic to get the decorations down, like, and I start opening up the boxes and remembering all the, the memories that come back with the decorations that we use, I just, I just really love it. Uh, putting a little Bing Crosby on the playlist. Even, you know, younger, middle-aged people know Bing Crosby, at least at Christmas time. And, uh, and decorating the entire house is just, uh, just an awesome thing. Um, I love Christmas lights on the house, except when I've waited too long and it's like 10 below and I'm trying to put them on. I do not like that. Um, I love Christmas movies. Favorite? Elf. Close second? Home Alone. Now you know something about me. I love uh, Christmas cookies. Sugar cookies with frosting on them. Absolute favorite, all right? They don't need sprinkles. You can't taste them. It just gets the house messy. I don't like that. Don't need sprinkles, right? But I love sugar cookies with frosting. Um, I love gathering together with family and friends in those weeks leading up to, to Christmas and seeing people and talking and just reconnecting a little bit. Um, I don't love the elf on the shelf. Don't love that. You can love it. I do not. I don't, anyway, that's okay. I'm done. Um, I love the Christmas season so much that I have to make a confession to you that I'd ask you not to tell anyone outside of this room. Okay? Now, you know how everyone complains when the stores bring out Christmas decorations in September? I kind of like that, actually. <laughs> and I always, like, don't say anything when people complain. I'm just like, oh, okay, that's how you feel. All right. I'll say a prayer for you, but, <laughs> but I like it. I really do, because I love the Christmas season. In fact, I was thinking about it the other day. Um, I am not a fan of winter or cold weather. I know some of you relate to me with that, too. And I was thinking, what would winter in Minnesota be like without Christmas to look forward to kind of towards the beginning of it? How much worse would January, February, and March be if there wasn't Christmas to look forward to in December, huh? Christmas makes a difference. It does. And all the stuff I've been talking about so far and mentioning all has to do with the nostalgia and the tradition of Christmas that 
honestly, I, I really do enjoy. That type of impact happens not in one year. You don't make a tradition after one year. It's years and years, right, of the cumulative effect. And, and that honestly is why um, if some of you don't have someone you really love with you at Christmas, maybe God called them home to heaven. That's why it's, it's always harder around the Christmas season because, because of the memories and the traditions and the nostalgia of it. But as much as all of that makes a difference, I, I guess I want you to know, and, and this is kind of the idea behind this series, that there's really one Christmas, one Christmas, not the cumulative effect of Christmases, but one that makes the biggest difference and the greatest significance of all. And I know it doesn't take a, a lot of thinking to know which one I'm referring to. 2,000 years ago, the very first Christmas made and makes the biggest difference of all. Just one. Just one. And if you're brand new to the Jesus side of Christmas, or even if you're not, when we better understand that part, the season becomes even more significant. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at the one Christmas. The one Christmas that makes the most difference by preaching through the account of Christmas, but then also the, the things that happen leading up to that very first Christmas. Now, when it comes to Christmas, there's a lot of things going on that in the biblical account that most of you know about uh, or have heard about. We've got the star in the sky leading the wise men. Um, we've got the, the shepherds going and telling. We've got the, uh, the stable acting as a labor and delivery room. We have the manger used as the first crib. Like most of us have heard about that. But the honest truth is there's a whole lot more leading up to the very first Christmas than what most people realize. In fact, there was, depending on the age of the earth, about 6,000 years of lead up to the very first Christmas. I want to spend a moment with one verse that was written about 400 years before Jesus was born. This is by the prophet Malachi. Malachi was a, a preacher who happened to have some, some special words to share from God. And these were his words, 400 years before Jesus was born, see, I, God, will send my messenger. That's not a reference to Jesus. It's a reference to John the Baptist, who was, well, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. Send John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me. He would, John would come to get people's hearts ready for the Savior with a message of repentance. Then suddenly... At that time, after the messenger comes, the Lord you are seeking, it's interesting, Malachi refers to Jesus the way we do, as Lord, as God. The Jesus, the Messiah you are seeking, will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, back to John, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so this happened 400 years before the first Christmas. Guess what happened right after this? Nothing happened for 400 years, nothing happened. In fact, if, if you, depending on how well you know your Bible, at the end of Malachi, the next book in the Bible chronologically is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in between there, there is nothing. It's one page in your Bible. It's 400 years in history. And here's what I know when you look at the, the, the spiritual health of the Jews at the time of Jesus. 
Those 400 years were not a good 400 years for the people of Israel. And here's what I suspect happened. That God decided to be silent for a while, and people took his silence as being inactivity. They took the silence of God to mean that he was absent and they got tired of waiting. And they, some of them got upset with God. Forget you, Lord. And they went on their way to whatever else was going on in their life. Put their focus elsewhere. Some of them, I know, wondered or even believed that there is really no God at all. Because he hasn't said anything for, for 400 years. And then today, we're going to look at some, the account of, of two people who were the first to see the wheels of Christmas start to turn about a year before Jesus was born. And their names were Zachariah and Elizabeth. And their connection to Christmas has all to do with this passage and John the Baptist. Now, the reason why this message is going to apply to you today is this. I think you've probably been where the Jews were during those 400 years. And what I mean by that is this. There's been seasons of your life where you, because God was silent, have felt like he was inactive. And sometimes when that inactivity has happened and you raise prayer after prayer about something and then there seems to be no change in your life, we even at times, because, because Christians are sinners too, we can find ourselves doubting God or doubting his goodness or doubting his love or doubting his wisdom at the very least. I mean, they had this wait for Christmas. What do we have? Um, we see sometimes God seemingly inactive when we've been praying uh, about other things, whether it's um, finding, again, that situation where someone we love isn't with us and, anymore and we're just feeling really down and it feels like God's inactive. Or maybe it's marital problems and issues that just seem too complicated and hard to figure out. And where are you, God? Or maybe it's chronic back pain or something else, an illness that you've been praying and praying about and there seems to be no change and you're wondering, God, do you hear me? You see, we've been where they were. We need what they needed. You see, there's two things we can do with this. See, our first fill-in, we're tempted to equate the absence of change in our lives with the absence of God in our lives. But that's just not the case. Those two things don't necessarily go together. So what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we do with those feelings? <laughs> the first thing is this. I'm going to hit you right between the eyes first. We need to repent of this type of thinking. Because this type of thinking comes from something in us that thinks that we know better than the almighty, omniscient, omniscient, perfect God. And when you really stop to think about how the creation could know more than the creator, it's like, that is 
the dumbest thing I've ever thought in my life that I would know better than God does. And yet we're there often, right? And so the best thing we can do is repent, first of all, this type of thinking and ask God for his forgiveness and his love and his mercy. But there's something else we can do. And it's kind of related to another passage in Scripture that says this, that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You know what it'll set you free from? Not problems. It'll set you free, the truth will, from old type of thinking, old ways of thinking. When we know the truth about God, it sets us free to live in a different way, in a new way. So that's what I want to do today. I I want to, through the account of Zechariah and Elizabeth, help you with this type of thinking by sharing with you truth about God that can set you free from your old way. All right? How's that sound? All right. You have no choice anyway. Here we go. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, goes this way. In the time of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So let's pause. We see from right from the beginning, Elizabeth was from a preacher's home. Her family were descendants of Aaron. That was the priestly line. And so Elizabeth was a PK, all right, preacher's kid. Zachariah, same thing. And these two PKs found each other, fell in love, And they now both were in ministry as well. Sounds like a pretty awesome family, doesn't it? Like, I I like preacher family. They're kind of cool. Verse 6, all right. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So not only were they in the ministry, but it says they were righteous. That doesn't mean that they were perfect. Elizabeth and Zechariah were sinners that struggled just like you do, just like I do. has nothing to do with the fact that they sinned less than anybody else. What it did have everything to do with is they, they knew where their hope came from. They knew they needed God. They knew that God would send a Savior, and they trusted in him for their forgiveness and salvation. And so in response to that, they would walk blamelessly. They, it means they followed God. Verse 7. Good stuff so far. We got, okay, but, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both past childbearing years. Now, let me just pause there and say, when you read verse five and six, you just don't feel like verse seven is fair, do you? Because they're doing all the right things. How many people in Israel would be called blameless and righteous? I don't know the answer to that, but not everybody. And yet they were people who weren't experiencing the the righteousness of God that yet probably were able to have kids, right? And there's something in us that's like, this is just not fair. And if you are in a situation like this as a married couple, I just want you to know that you've been in my prayers. I'm not... I'm not just saying that. You have been. And, and I don't know everybody who's struggling with this, uh, and so I, it's not always by name, but I, I pray for this category of people because I know how difficult it can be. And 2,000 years ago, it was worse. Here's why. Culturally, there was this stigma, and it wasn't biblical, it wasn't true, but it was cultural, 
that if someone wasn't able to have a child, that the reason that was happening was because God was upset with them. That there was something in their closet, so to speak, that God was not allowing blessing on them. And so here you have these two people that are, are righteous. They're, they're obeying God. They're following his ways. And yet this, this horrible thing is happening to them. Something that people around the city well are probably talking about and pointing fingers at. And I wonder, I wonder what they're really like because they can't have kids. And all this crud going on for Elizabeth and Zechariah. And it just doesn't seem fair at all. Next verse. Only when Zachari- once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood. Next verse. To go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So let me pause there. Um, there was about 24 divisions of priests uh, in Israel. And not all of them served in Jerusalem at the big temple. They served all over Israel, but twice a year, these, each division came to the temple in Jerusalem to um, serve there. And that was always a special time. Zechariah was one of these priests that didn't serve always in Jerusalem, but twice a year he came. Now, there was this other thing that sometimes would happen um, for the priests, and that is that they'd be able to go and spe- offer some special incense in the holy place. Now, let's continue. When the time for the burning, we got to go back. When the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, now we can go to that diagram. So Zechariah was, was chosen that day to be the one to lift up that incense and to go into this place right here. I know it, Not everyone can see it great, but called the holy place, all right? This was a very special place. Um, The holy of holies is where God's special presence was, and this was right outside the door to that. This was, this day was Zachariah's highlight of his priestly career, to be able to, to go into the holy place, to offer prayers and incense. This is a really big day for Zachariah. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah. He was standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Yeah, I understand, Zechariah. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Here's what I think happened in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. When they were newlyweds, I don't know what age that was. At a certain point, they kind of decided, and it's probably right away in that time and culture, um, we should start a family. And it took a while. And then three years passed, and this didn't seem quite normal. (laughs) And so prayers started to be raised, okay? And then they got to be about 30, and it still wasn't happening, and it seemed to be a prayer that they were praying more often. Dear Lord, please bless us with a child. They got to 35, prayers 
every day, every hour. Lots and lots of prayers. They got to 40, which is still really, really young, but starting to get to the end of the, the time where people normally have kids. But there's still hope, so the prayers, they're desperate prayers. They're, they're prayers with sweat coming down their, their heads because they're desperate at this point. And then they got to 45, maybe 50. And they're still praying, but it's not to have a child anymore. It's, Lord, please help me to endure what you have decided to give us, which is no children. And in the midst of those, what I'll call 25 years, maybe 20 years of prayers for the same exact thing, there had to have been moments where they're like, Lord, is he even hearing me? Because I'm praying the same thing every day. He seems inactive, at the very least, unloving. (laughs) Is he there at all? And when that angel appeared to Zechariah, for Gabriel to say, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Man. 20 years of prayers. I, I don't see them go to the Lord, but to hear, to know that he heard them all, whew, what an awesome thing for Zechariah. And maybe, guys, as you struggle with something that just doesn't seem to change and doesn't seem to be taken away, maybe that's all that you need today. Because it's a big thing to know that the, that God is the, the God of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the same God that you pray to. And the same thing that happened to Zechariah and Elizabeth is the same that is happening for you. He hears your prayers. Our, our second fill-in for today. God may be silent, but he is never absent. Don't ever equate God's silence with his absence. You see, there's always stuff going on behind the scenes. There's always things going on that God is doing that you were never intended to know. He being silent does not mean he's being absent. He heard Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he hears you too. So, So what do we do with that? In our prayers, let's do what Peter encourages us to do. In one of his letters, God, cast your anxiety, cast your stress on him because he cares for you. And, and, I, and if your thought is, I know I've done that. It doesn't seem to be working. It's going to be a simplistic response, but it's the answer. You got to do it again. You got to do it again. And you got to do it again. Some of us are carrying things we were never intended to carry. And God is there. And he wants to and has the power to carry it for you. And one of the best ways to give it to him is through prayer. He may not always answer it the way you're asking, but he is always going to do what's very best for you. Next verse. He, John the Baptist, this is still the angel speaking to Zechariah in the holy place. John the Baptist will be a joy and a delight to you, and many are going to rejoice because of 
his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So even John the Baptist has this special place in the history of Christmas where he wasn't only great in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, he's, he's great in our eyes. I mean, most of you coming here today had heard of John the Baptist because he had an really important ministry of repentance preparing the way for the Savior. Next verse. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of repentance, and so John the Baptist would be to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18. After Zechariah heard this, he asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife, and not ready to call her old because he learned, but she definitely is well along in years, right? Okay. How can I be sure of this? And I think, I think the next verse, I mean, it's just Gabriel and, and, and Zechariah in the holy place. The next verse, I am almost positive their sarcasm in the verse because here's the response. How can I be sure of this? Verse 19, I'm Gabriel. I mean, like there's an angel standing in front of you and you're asking about how you can be sure. How about this? If an angel appears to you, just go with the angel of the Lord, Right? How can you be sure of this, Zachariah? There's this amazing thing happening right in front of your eyes. And, you know, we get it. I mean, he's, he's an old man and his wife is well along in years. But Gabriel stands in the presence of God and has been sent to speak to you, Zachariah, and to tell you this good news. And Zachariah doubted. Remember, he wasn't perfect. He was righteous, but he wasn't perfect. Verse 20. And now, Zechariah, you'll be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now you will be silent. It's like God was having a uh, children's message for Zechariah for nine months. Like, you go sit in the corner now and don't talk. And there's inkling in the rest of Luke 1 that he probably wasn't able to hear either. So he couldn't talk. He couldn't hear. And I mean, this is like a great day for Elizabeth. Like she's pregnant and her husband doesn't talk for nine months. I mean, things don't get any better than that, right? Gabriel said, you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper or appointed time. At the chosen time, at the right time. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like God wasn't inactive at all. It sounds like even when he was silent, he was actively working things so that it would all happen at the very right time. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, that meant no kids at 25. But hey, I'm giving you one after menopause. It meant something great for them. Now that doesn't mean that whatever it is you're praying for is what you're going to exactly get. But here's what it does mean, that God has a plan for you. He always does. He's always active. He always knows best. And here's why sometimes you're confused by it. It's our next fill-in. He always works with eternity in mind. (laughs) He wants you to be happy on earth. 
And he knows the best way for you to be happy is to know that things are good between you and God. And sometimes, and I'm not trying to read God's mind or will, I don't know, but sometimes he allows things to linger in our lives because it pushes us back to him. It forces us, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, to come to him over and over. He had an appointed time for Zachariah and Elizabeth, which worked quite well because he had an appointed time for Jesus to be born. At the exact right time, the Savior of the world came. And people over the 6,000 years of waiting were like, man, God, where are you? And God's like, just wait. It may not be your generation, but I know exactly when it's going to happen because I have an appointed time. Then it was 2,000 years ago. When Jesus came and made sure that everything was right between us and God through his work on the cross. And here's what I want you to know, that God has an appointed time for you. He has a right time for you. And I don't know what that looks like. But this truth will set you free. Because if you have a God that has appointed times for everything— I think we can give it to whatever it is to him. He's not inactive. He's with us. And he knows what we need. And so here's your take home. And I wish I had more time, but I'm going to have to do it quick. Your take home is this, our last. So put down, put down the weight because some of you walked in today and maybe I couldn't see it on your face, but you walked in with the weight that you were carrying. And, and my first question is like, why did you pick up the dumbbell this morning? Just leave it at home. We do not require you to bring dumbbells to church or to work. And, you know, 30-pound dumbbells, you know, might not be a lot for Ben Burke, but for me, it weighs me down, Right? If, if you feel weight, it's because you're carrying something that you were not ever intended to carry. Outcomes. The future. And this does not give you the right to be, mm, to not plan, to not think, to not do all that stuff. No, you keep doing that. But you leave outcomes to the Lord. You leave the future at the foot of the cross. You put down your weight and give it to him. Because he has an appointed time for you. And he's hearing your prayers. <laughs> Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for family and friends. But most of all, we, we thank you for the result of that one Christmas, because it's through Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection that we can truly be at peace, that, that we can have peace in all circumstances and situations, knowing, knowing that you are alive and active, knowing that things are right between us and you. We ask you to guide and bless our Christmas celebration this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.